You're listening to the Achieving DevOps Podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. Well, hey there. Welcome to Achieving DevOps. This is part two, sorry, part three. Uh, our conversation with Abel Wong was so interesting, we had to cut it in, into three parts, but you're going to love his perspective. Here we're, we're talking a little bit about, well, you know, what about brownfield applications, legacy, uh, and and also what about flaky tests? So this is, as we wrap up this discussion, I think you'll find Abel's perspective very refreshing and pragmatic. Enjoy. You, you know, it, it, I'll tell you um, a story from a couple months ago. I was meeting with a, a banking customer, yeah. and the the engineers had me sit down with the stakeholder and the operations team. And it was almost like um, marriage counseling a little yeah. bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, um, totally. The developers were so frustrated because they, they were, they'd write a little bit of code and they have to wait for months for like a, a, a manual. Yes, no. And you're talking to a stakeholder, um, the VP and he's, he's the bad guy, right? Yeah. But he's like, listen, I got burned. I said, yes, I've been, I was traveling around China and then, whole features got, you know, we really look bad in front of our customers. So that's why I clamped down this way. Giving that, that stakeholder the ability to turn on a feature at will, mm-hmm. like you, you, he still has the control and he can ramp it up and just move it out to particular customers or, you know, turn it off at will. It's, it's empowering to the business users. And at the same time, it frees up that, those frustrating restrictions the engineers are feeling around, you know, stop and go, stop and go. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, I, I, such a huge fan. I am such a huge fan. Is it really that simple, though, like with rollbacks? I mean, Donovan Brown, I love his example, the case study in Knight Capital, but Knight Capital used feature flags. Is it really like, oh, it's going to be a completely reliable rollback? If you write your code correctly, absolutely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling Knight Capital didn't, yeah, they didn't have microservices. I've got a feeling they, 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 yeah. they Let's you know use our air quotes used feature flags, but they didn't do it. It it if done correctly, it really literally is as easy as just flipping that switch back and saying nope, turn it off, and then bam, your code gets routed to the old code. Yeah, done. if you're walking over with the script of steps in like six pages, which is what they did, you yeah. know that that probably not they didn't do it right. Yeah. Yep. 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 Do you think capability matrices are an anti-pattern? Capability matrices? Yeah, I know this is kind of a, a side question here, but um, that's something like um, the book um, Accelerate. So explain uh, to me. Which a is a great book that I love, but a capability matrix says, you know, uh, the whole problem is that a lot of times we, as dev leads, we have a portfolio of applications, not just mm-hmm. one. We've got yeah. like 40, 39 yeah. of them are written by someone else and they're long gone. Mm-hmm. So in order to have all your teams moving kind of towards the same goal, we say, what are, we just let, let's make a list of our capabilities that we're looking for. And basically, if you, if you can check all the boxes or say we're category five on all of these, you're ready for the web. You're ready for the cloud. <laughs> Does that work? <laughs> well, you know, in, in the book, they said capability matrices are, are bad, but I've interviewed a couple people from large companies. They said, Dave, it's, it's been a big win for us because how else can we get our mainframe and our legacy teams, um, you know, on the same page as like our, our green, greenfield apps development. And so that way it's like, listen, it's 
That way we can have our teams be self-grading and have them move towards more rapid uh, releases and better test layer without having to say you must be you know, 100% built for the cloud with a 40-year-old app. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. So once you start talking mainframes or talking about you know, apps that, that don't go to the cloud gracefully, um, I guess you do need to have a checklist, right? To say, yeah, to, to, to make sure everything all works together. Uh, interesting. I, I've, like I said, I live in such a bubble. Um, I live in such a cloud bubble. Let's be very specific about that. That it that that I haven't even thought about non-cloud apps in, in quite some time. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's that book. I really love Accelerate. I think it's terrific. What's it's the book? The book on the author. Accelerate. I need to check that out. By Nicole Forsgren. It's got Gene Kim in it. It's it's selling like hotcakes and. Mm -hmm. It's terrific. It's basically all of the Dora reports kind of bundled mm -hmm. into one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. I really liked it. Um, it. It basically said everything comes down to these four KPIs. And if you're doing well in all four of these, you're doing great. And lead yep. time was one of them. Number of releases, yep, number yep. of broken releases. There, there's four main KPIs they looked at. Yep, yep, yep. So, Actually, I've, I've seen that. Yep. Hard okay. to argue with that. One of the things I like about talking to you is, is you're mentioning it's the equivalent of nutrition, right? is testing. Yeah. Usually the books gloss over this, but this is why enterprises stumble more than your web native applications. Um, over like, well, how do we wrap testing around this, you know, this mainframe app? How do we do, you know, defect driven testing or, or BDD or TDD? There's so many, really getting a functional test layer. This was a big struggle we had at Microsoft. Yeah, so here's the big, here's my big thing, right? Um, and of course, everything is easier with Greenfield apps, of course. But right. quality, for the longest time, quality was something that we just worried about at the end, right? You write your app, and when it's done, or you write your feature, you throw it over the wall to, Q, to the QA teams, and then they would find your bugs for you. And um, we can't do that anymore. Again, there's just no time for that, right? So quality can't be something that we try to bolt on at the end. Quality has to be something that we're working at from the very beginning, right? It, you, you, the industry, or especially with Microsoft, right? We've been saying shift left, shift left for like a bazillion years now. For like the past, I don't know, five years we've been saying that shift left. Um, but I get it, right? Because you, you do need to shift left. Um, quality, again, you can't bolt it on at, it, at the end. This is something that you have to write into your code from the very beginning. Right. And I don't care if you're writing mainframe code, if you're writing Pascal code, if you're writing, you know, COBOL or whatever, there is always ways that you can write unit tests around it. There are frameworks for everything. I, I remember one time I was in a, a conference and there was an architect up there and he said, unit tests are worthless. You know, it's <laughs> like a conversational hand grenade. Right. And it, it was so funny hearing that because it's like that is the exact opposite of reality. You you cannot fire off the number of tests that we do, something like 60,000 tests on the Azure DevOps uh, rollouts without relying very heavily on on unit testing. Yeah, I think it's up to 80 now. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. yeah. So every every feature that we write has to have a set of unit tests that exercises it completely, right? Every life site incident that occurs, well, guess what? When we go back, we better write unit tests as well around that to make sure that never happens again. Right. So I am in the camp where I don't believe unit tests are, a, are, are optional. 
I think in a DevOps world, you have to have unit tests to be successful. You cannot be successful without unit tests. You just can't move at speed and ensure the level of quality necessary without having unit tests. That's how strongly I feel about this. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> it's, we, we say these things like, oh, you know, um, our applications really weren't written that way. Or, you know, unit testing doesn't catch the issues that we see. We say those things so that we don't have to eat our fruits and vegetables kind of Exactly. Thing. Exactly. Yeah, it's an excuse. You know? <laughs> when, people, when people say things like that to me, I laugh and said, wrong. Every single bug you find, and, and I understand that you have mountains of legacy code, right? Everyone does. And, and in my world, legacy code is just code that doesn't have unit tests. We Thank all have you. these mountains of legacy code, and nobody is going to give us the time to go back and write unit tests for it. And it's, it's a waste of time to do that anyway. But once again, it's like anything else. Moving forward, every new feature that you write, write unit tests around it. Every bug that comes in. Remember when you told me bug, the bugs that we have aren't caught by unit tests? When you have a bug, write a unit test that exercises that bug. Why? So you can make sure that bug never comes back again. So the, the myth or the, the, the wrong assumption about unit tests is that unit tests finds bugs for you. Unit test doesn't really find you bugs. The protection that it gives you is it makes sure that you don't have regression bugs ever, ever, ever again, right? So um, a lot, most of the times when you write unit tests, you're saying at this moment in time, this is how I believe my app is behaving. And when I change my code, somehow by adding a feature, fixing a bug or whatever, I might inadvertently change the behavior of my code, and that's when my unit tests will catch it and be like, nope, you changed the behavior, these three tests broke. And that's when you can look at those three tests and quickly determine, ooh, I did break something, and I can fix it really, really fast now because I actually know it exists and I can set a breakpoint to it. Um, or you can look and be like, no, this behavioral change is kind of what I want, so let me update the unit test. Right? Mm -hmm. But that's, that's where the power of unit test comes in. Um, I, I always remember that team, and this happens over and over again, right, when you first force them to write unit tests. And after the first sprint, they're like, that was so useless. Why did we waste all that time writing unit tests? And the second sprint, they'll say the same thing. And maybe even the third <laughs> sprint, they'll say the same thing. But the first time it catches a regression bug for them, that's when their eyes light up and they're like, oh, I wouldn't have caught this for months because I would have never exercised that part of the code unless I was doing X, Y, Z, which was not in our test scripts, right? So I was like, bingo. That's why you need unit tests, right? Not to find your fresh brand new bugs of the code that you just wrote. It's really all about making sure that you don't get regression. And I, I think it's interesting that um, like the engineering, the management layer uh, for Azure DevOps, they watch the build times religiously. Like mm -hmm. they try to get it under 10 minutes because, yep. and if the test is running along, they fail it immediately. Yep, 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 yep. So here's the big thing, right? If Builds run for too long, then they stop becoming useful in terms of a CI tool. Right. If unit test takes too long to run, then people start not wanting to run unit tests. Right. Uh, the most important thing is if your tests are flaky, where sometimes they pass and sometimes they don't, yes. nobody knows why, then your test becomes completely useless. Because then that's when developers look at it and just be like, well, fuck, oh, sorry. That's when developers just say, well, 
who cares what these tests say because nobody knows if, if green really means green or red really means red. Right. And and we, we spend a lot of time just murdering flaky tests. Like if we run it 500 times and it fails in the 501st, it's a bad test. Junk yep. it, start over. Junk it, start – exactly. Junk it, start over or figure out why it's being junky. Um, that's actually one of my biggest uh, – problems with a lot of automated UI tests that gets written. Automated UI tests are just inherent by their nature. They're extremely fragile and flaky. And so it, it, when you have a large amount of them and you're trying to run them really fast, it's awfully easy to get false positives or false negatives. And that's, uh, that becomes a huge problem. So those, those are things to look out for. Right. And so we still use them at Microsoft, um, mm -hmm. but it, it's like we, we do them in suites. We do them in segments. And yeah. so that it doesn't slow down that that whole build and test process too much. Yeah. So my favorite uh, my favorite story from Microsoft is um, when we first took TFS and moved it into the cloud, because uh, clearly it was not a cloud ready application at all. It was a monolithic <laughs> application that literally sat on top of an instance of SQL Server. Right. For for every install, you have to have your own instance of SQL Server. But um, I, I, I did think it was fascinating watching us try to get that very monolithic application cloud ready. And one of them is with the test. How do you test this fast enough? And I remember the conclusion was, well, let's take all of our, our test scripts, our manual test scripts and turn them into automated UI tests. And because we're Microsoft, we can pay a bunch of Chinese people to do it for us. Right, so they got a team in China. They spent X amount of dollars. I can't remember how much it was, but it was quite a bit of money. I mean, not for Microsoft, but it was, quite a chunk of money just to write automated UI tests for the gajillions of, of manual tests that we had, right? And they're like, all right, we're done. We've got this, let's run it. It would take like a million years to run and the amount of false positive, false negatives, it was, there was never a time in history where all the tests were green, ever. Which means nobody looked at them because they would all something would always fail whether it was a real failure or not right so that's when we realized nope you can't automate everything <laughs> so we, we started shifting our focus away from functional testing to unit testing but even with like super solid unit tests you still need to poke the ui a little bit right you mm -hmm, still absolutely. need to have you still need to have manual tests and you still need to have some automated UI tests as well. I think with the Azure DevOps team, we got very, very lucky. We didn't need a manual testing team uh, because the first person we would deploy any new features to would be our own engineering team. And they would dog food these new features for a couple of days, right? So we acted as our own, uh, our, our own QA team. We literally use Azure DevOps every single day it, to do our work. So, so we would exercise a whole bunch of it. So we were like a, the, the first line. Um, but not everyone can get away with that. So when people ask me, oh, do you get rid of your entire QA team? It doesn't make sense to yeah. get rid of your entire QA team. Do yeah. you still need to have an entire division of pure QA testers, just button pushers? Probably not. There's, there's probably better ways to spend your money. Um, uh, but there's still a need for functional tests, manual functional tests, and automated UI tests. Yeah, the, the old days, though, where we would huck it over the, the fence to QA, that has to go away. I mean, and that's why we flatten it out. There's no more, you know, it's not, they're all, everyone's called engineers, even if your specialty is QA. Yeah, the, the big thing is there is just not enough time. 
right? Yes. And then functional testing. How much time does that take? For a medium-sized application, easily a couple of months. Who has the time? My sprint's two weeks long, right? So, so we've got to be able to ensure quality some other way. And it's interesting that you brought up this whole thing of, you know, at Microsoft, everybody's an engineer. They're not QA people. They're, they're just engineers. Um, I, I was around when we still had, when we still called QA testers, QA testers. And it produced this weird cultural effect at Microsoft, right? We, we, number one, it built up all these different walls. You've got your database team. They would sit together in, 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 in the cafeteria. You've got your backend developers and they'd sit together, you know, and then you got your QA testers and they would hide in the corner together. And the weird thing was, and I don't think anyone really meant to, but QA testers started becoming a second-class citizen at Microsoft, right? And, and again, like, I don't think any of us planned it that way, but there were countless times I would hear, you know, uh, I would go through a stack of, res even I was guilty of this. I'd go through a stack of resumes and I'd look at somebody and be like, yeah, I don't think he's strong enough to be in my team, but he might, he might be, be great good, good enough for QA. Right? Yeah. And right. that's a horrible, horrible thing to do. I felt <laughs> when I finally realized the effect of behaving that way, what the, the type of culture that, that we were building that would come out of it, it was number one is really shocking for me. And so so I'm glad we changed that. Um, and number two, it just it just doesn't make any sense. And, and, and again, in today's world, there is just not that time to throw your your finished code over the fence, have a whole separate team, test it, figure out what's wrong, then throw that problem back at you where you spend half a day arguing with them because you think your code works. Right. You, there's just no time for that anymore. I feel like a lot of a lot of companies are in that state where, where they're running red with their releases. You know, and they, they don't have a, a reliable test layer. I feel like that's the majority in the sense. Uh, it doesn't surprise me um, because, once again, this is the natural, the natural order of things, right? First, we couldn't even build the right thing at any type of cadence. So then we adopted things like Agile, and now we're able to do that. Next, we couldn't, be able, we couldn't ship our stuff into our production fast enough, so we started worrying about CI/CD pipelines. Only after that has taken place now we start realizing, oh crap, what about quality? How do we maintain quality in this DevOps world, right? Um, and like I said, once you figure that out, there's gonna be next layers of pain as well. Databases, security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and you talk, you had a great article on Dynatrace and the unbreakable pipeline. That's like a self-healing where if, if there's a break, you know, we'll roll back to the previous version automatically, yeah. like no hands involved. Yep, yep, yep. So Do this, you see that catching fire, like monitoring his code? I hope so. Uh, <laughs> I think it's I think it's early. I think it's early in its infancy. You know, I think Dynatrace has done some amazing stuff because they are using AI to help them monitor for ab anomalies. Is that the word? Ab anomalies. Mm -hmm. Abnormal stuff. I don't know. Any, anyway, so they're they're using AI to to look for for things that don't look right, right? And if there are enough of these things that don't look right, or if certain thresholds just completely gets, gets uh, uh, just crushed, at that point they can say, this build is bad, let's roll back, right? Um, Suddenly that, a page is taking 10 times longer to render, something yeah. like that. And this is great, right? Because otherwise there has to be a human being that does literally the exact same thing. You've got monitoring software and they're sitting there looking at graphs, looking at, at charts, 
looking at, you know, reports and stuff to decide, uh-oh, this is really bad. Now I need to manually roll that back, right? So if you can automate the process, I'm all for it. So the, the, the I, my whole end goal is I want to be able to deploy faster, but yet I still want to be able to deploy safer. So anytime I can have machines help me along the way, that's great for me, right? Because that, that can help me move faster and at the same time safer. Until Skynet shows up and then we all get right. stopped by Arnold. <laughs> so where do you see being like 10 years from now? Let's say you have a crystal ball. You can look at it. Where do you think we're going to be when it comes to DevOps? And like, what, what do you think the future holds for us? So back in my day, when I first started writing code, we did not even have nightly builds. Building was kind of a mystery. And then later it got to the point where, yes, we had nightly builds. Somebody would run a script. And, but the whole idea of CI, right? Checking in and then once you check in the code, the build automatically kicks off. That was completely foreign. And I remember there was a chunk of my time as a consultant where that's all I did. I would go to companies, I would show them the amazing power of CI and I would help them implement that. In today's world, CI is pretty much, a, by now, it's pretty much a no-brainer. It's a checkbox, yeah. Yeah, it's a checkbox. It's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. I think that's how DevOps is going to be as well. It's just going to be a no-brainer, right? It's, it's, DevOps is just going to be there from the very beginning. And we're starting to get to a state where that's possible, right, with the different scaffolding tools um, where you can just say, I want to build a, uh, a React application you that hooks up to a Cosmos backend. Um, yeah, that's the type of application I want to build. And then bam, uh, you know, we can build out for you, scaffold for you out the full pipeline uh, and and also the repository with sample code. And not only do you have sample code, but you have infrastructure as code that will create for you all the infrastructure that you need as well. Right. So so we're, we're not quite there yet, but I think we're going to reach a point in time when DevOps it's not even going to be a thing. It's just a checkbox. It's just a thing we all do. And I, um, I feel like DevOps and the cloud definitely, definitely intersects there. And I feel like a lot of companies hold off because they try again to take on too much. They, they try to re-architect applications for the cloud, yes. when it, almost in a sense, um, a good amount of the time. I'm not saying in every case you would be almost better off doing a lift and shift. It's not necessarily an anti-pattern. It, it's, it's like an intermediary step, I guess. Yeah, to move your environments off of these, you know, these, the, 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 the on-prem uh, data center and move it more to the cloud where it's a little more malleable. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't have a problem with that as well. And um, moving to the cloud is not trivial. So especially with like love old school long-term legacy apps written in, you know, I, I don't know, ASP.net or, or whatever tech, old school technology um, or maybe even ASP or something like that. Right. Um, I, I get that it's hard to to just re-architect that and put that in the cloud. But I, I like your idea of, of, you know what, it's better to be in the cloud than not. So step one is let's do a lift and shift. You're still running a bunch of VMs, but now, guess what? You're using the power of Azure. You don't have to manage that infrastructure yourself. You still need to manage your own VMs, but you don't have to manage like your VMware infrastructure or worry about your data center. There's a lot that can be gained just from doing a lift and shift. Um, once you are done with your lift and shift, though, 
then you can start re-architecting your, your application. And again, you don't need to do everything all at once, right? You can do it piece by piece. What hurts the most? Let's create a microservice for that and let's do that. Mm -hmm. I can look at TFS as the perfect example. When we first moved it into the cloud, we literally lifted and shifted into the cloud. So every customer, and remember, it, TFS is a bunch of web services sitting on top of SQL Server, right? Every customer that we had, we literally had to spin up their own instance of SQL Server to support that. This was back when we first moved to the cloud. Clearly, this doesn't scale or we would run out of money really, really quickly, right? We're spinning up an instance of SQL Server for every customer. So we had to make it multi-tenant. That was the pain that we felt the most then. So that's what we did, right? We, we spent some time, we made it multi-tenant so that, so that it was more cloud friendly, but it's still very, very cloud unfriendly. So the next thing that we ended up doing was let's move away from these VMs and let's start moving pieces into app service. That's what we did. And let's start, and now we're like, okay, let's start teasing. It's still pretty monolithic-y though. I, I don't know if that's a word, but it, it was- It's a word now. Yeah. <laughs> So now you're watching us slowly tease it apart into more and more microservices as well, right? And TFS, this has been what, a seven-year journey, eight-year journey, 10-year journey maybe? So it's, um, wow, 15-year journey. I mean, 2005 is when TFS first came out. So this is a 15-year journey. This isn't something that just happens overnight. So yeah, your idea of lifting and shifting and then slowly teasing it into the cloud, I'm all for that. And at Microsoft, we've done the exact same thing. And that, that, that's exactly what you said at the beginning, where you just try to take one thing at a time. Not Don't try to change too much too fast. No, because then you're going to fail. And then once you fail, that's it. it it's over, right? It's, so, it's a get get fired later decision. Yeah. Yep. Um, it, like if you would have tried doing a TFS 100% to the cloud, we're going to re-architect it. I imagine that turning into a Hindenburg pretty quickly. Too much it, to change. Too much too legacy much. code. Yeah, and it would take way, way, way too long, right? So while we were doing this, so remember, while we were doing this, we still had to support the customers that we had that were using our system already, right? So we couldn't just say, abandon this, all developers work on cloud. We, right. had, to do, we had to do everything all at the same time. So it was, from a project management perspective and a coordination perspective, it was, it was pretty freaking awesome. Um, and, and technically, it was is pretty cool what we ended up doing as well. But again, address what hurts the most first. Do things one thing at a time. Uh, uh, then, then you can be successful. I love it. Great. Well, thank you so much, Abel. I really appreciate your your, your time on this podcast, and uh, I love your enthusiasm. And um, I'm especially glad to hear that that your health is doing a lot better. That's good to know. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for having him on your show. Good luck on your book. It's a great book. Everyone should get it. It's awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Abel. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. So that wraps up our discussion with Abel. Um, I do have some links on my blog. He's got a terrific uh, website with uh, code samples. Abel's a very active coder. Some great presentations you're going to love and more discussions about things like, well, launch darkly, feature flags, uh, Dynatrace, Unbreakable Pipelines. Uh, Abel's a terrific advocate for all things DevOps. I think uh, you'll enjoy very much exploring what he has to offer. Uh, thanks, Abel, for your time again, and guys, enjoy your week. Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. 
and we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.